Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey OneNote Knockreiner. I only have one note, and that's stupid dad jokes. <laughs> On today's episode, as Corey hinted at, we'll be discussing a relatively new malware delivery vehicle in the form of OneNotes. We'll give an update uh, from CISA on some nation-state ransomware activity that's really annoying. We'll give another update on a international, not citizen, non-citizen, international, national, whatever, that has successfully been arrested and uh, convicted of cybercrime-adjacent crimes. And we will also discuss the latest round of attacks targeting hypervisor servers exposed to the internet. Uh, with that, though, let's go ahead and... Uh, virtualize our way in. Ooh, PSVR is coming out soon. I'll be ready for that. By the time you've listened to this, we'll be virtualizing our way on in. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, start this week with the story I think we probably would have covered last week if we uh, hadn't aired our kickoff conference podcast, uh, which hopefully was enjoyable to you all. Um, again, if you have any feedback on that one, kick it back our way. We'd love to do more of them in the future. But anyways, starting with this week's story. Uh, so this was started around February 2nd when researchers noticed a unknown threat actor exploiting vulnerabilities against unpatched VMware ESXi servers to deliver ransomware. And they gave this the name ESXi ARGs. Uh, they earlier believed it to be an exploit. Wow, that, that's a big deal, Mark, because everyone should put all of their ESXi servers on internet-facing public IPs. That's really like that they're designed for that. You really should put your primary hypervisor available for everyone on the internet. So yep. no exactly. wonder this is such a big deal. <laughs> that's exactly how you're supposed to deploy them, yes. Um, <laughs> can folks hear sarcasm? Hopefully they can. <laughs> Anyways... Anyway, <laughs> so, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, give me a break. There's literally thousands of them out there. So early on, they believe the exploit to be CVE 2021-21974, uh, which I'm sure everyone has remembered now, uh, a heap-based overflow vulnerability that VMware patched back in February of 2021. Uh, but, so this was a vulnerability in a very specific module, and... Uh, it turns out some of the victims did not actually have that module running. Uh, so it's possible that and likely that they may be using other vulnerabilities as well, too, which we'll get into. Uh, the POC for that specific one, though, became uh, the POC proof of concept, short speak for the actual exploit code, uh, became available a few months after the flaw was patched. Uh, but it wasn't until now that we started seeing potential exploit activity become very widespread. Uh, the French web host provider, OVH, analyzed some of the attacks and found the ransomware encrypts files associated with virtual machines like VMDKs, VMX, uh, VMFX, and so on and so forth. Um, and specifically, they attacked and targeted ESXi servers that were exposed to the internet with port 427. So one of the management ports, not just the, uh, the web port, which is normal old HTTPS typically. Uh, ransomware drops notes on the victims on internet accessible locations, which means using tools like Shodan and Census.io can find how many victims there are. Um, at 
as of last week, there were around 1,000 to 2,000 compromised servers, but CISA reported up to 3,800 compromised ser servers as of February 8th. Um, other notes, researchers at Gray Noise stated that it's possible additional vulnerabilities were being used as well. They pointed out CVE 2020-3992 as another possibility. Um, but VMware has also so far said there's no evidence that a zero day was used in the attack. So it was likely a unpatched but known vulnerability um, that these victims had exposed. Uh, so early on, so I guess if we'd first covered this when it happened, uh, there would have been some good news because uh, originally the uh, ransomware they were deploying had a few issues in its codes and didn't encrypt all files. And so CISA actually released a recovery tool on February 8th to help organizations recover files uh, thanks to an error of those that ransomware's code. Unfortunately, uh, the latest variants have actually improved and appear to be fully encrypting now, and that tool no, no longer works. Uh, they also removed the Bitcoin addresses from the ransom notes um, and instead tell victims to contact the threat actor through Tox, which is an instant messaging platform, which theoretically makes tracing and recovering payments more difficult. Uh, so I guess, first off, back to your point, Corey, um, this does appear to be affecting ESXi servers with, oh, sorry, not just um, like web access exposed to the internet, but other more critical management ports as well, too. So I guess step one is maybe don't expose that to the internet. Yeah, yeah, I it know. seems I, I don't know. I mean, even if you have a use case where you have a test lab set up that you want to get to remotely, there's easy things like VPN that you can put it behind. So it just seems kind of silly to put your hypervisor out there, management or even privileged port access to any server to the internet seems kind of silly to me. I do find it interesting how at the beginning, everyone thought it was this relatively new zero day-ish flaw, but now, I mean, Though at least in a few cases, there's some two-year-old flaws. So we shouldn't forget patch your ESXi servers for sure. I mean, they're used, they seem to be using a menagerie of flaws to get in, including some old ones too. So patching obviously helps. Yep. And uh, to the point about hiding their Bitcoin addresses, like we've seen over the past few years, the FBI has gotten increasingly effective at recovering payments that have been sent for ransomware extortions. They've got a whole team. They call it the the RAT team, uh, recovery asset team within the FBI. Uh, that, I mean, we've seen, what was the Colonial Pipeline? They got back like 70 or 80% of the extortion payments, several other high profile ones they've done well too. Yeah, and their description tool, even though it's now been kind of uh, not working this cool. So kudos definitely to the authorities for helping out. I will say I'm kind of surprised they're not just using Monero or something that, that's harder to track, though. I mean, what, it's kind of surprising they're using Bitcoin at all, to be honest. It does seem a lot of ransomware attacks have transitioned to Monero because it does hide not just the identities, but also like the volumes of coin that you send across it to makes it significantly more difficult to follow. But like with Bitcoin, you can still hide your tracks. Like I just saw a news article yesterday about a, uh, North Korea, who, spoiler, we'll chat about in a little bit here, uh, started using a new Bitcoin Tumblr service again to mask a lot of their coins before withdrawing them. So there are still ways to hide some of your activity on the Bitcoin blockchain. That said, it looks like U.S. government, like the FBI specifically, has gotten really good at tracking it. 
So by removing the Bitcoin address from these ransomware notes and making the victims reach out directly, that does make it a little more difficult for the FBI to automatically track a lot of this and potentially recover it easily. Uh, which means if you are a victim of something like this, like reach out to the authorities. Like the FBI isn't going to come and arrest you and like go through your network to find issues that you may have. They're there to help you recover because you are the victim. And they may be able to get back some payments if you have paid the ransom extortion in this case to get access to your ESXi server back. Or you could always just put yourself in a position where you're not going to fall victim to this and use a VPN to protect access to your VMware server. Who would have thought? Maybe that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, though, this doesn't seem to be slowing down. There's still thousands of exposed servers out there and thousands of ones that have already been popped. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, moving on, though. So last week, a jury in the United States District Court of Boston successfully convicted Russian national Vladislav, Vladislav, Vladislav Kyushin of crimes relating to insider trading, which you might think, why does that, what does that have to do with the security podcast? Uh, insider trading that they conducted using information stolen from several U.S. companies' networks. Uh, so Kliushin was arrested in Switzerland back in 2021 as he was about to embark on a ski trip uh, and then subsequently extradited to the United States later that year in December. Uh, Kliushin and four co-conspirators were employed by Kliushin's Moscow-based IT firm, M13, which offered penetration testing and APT simulation services with several Russian government organizations as advertised customers. But on the side... They also hacked into computer networks of publicly traded companies like Tesla, uh, Capstead Mortgage, Roku, and Snap Inc. And uh, used information like earnings reports and SEC filings that they stole from them in order to make illegal trades on the stock exchanges like NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange. Uh, so some details that we got from the court cases on this, they used malware to steal employee credentials which they then used to log into the victim networks. From there, they stole these financial reports before they were made public. Um, they used some proxy services uh, to route their activity from servers outside of Russia to conceal their origin. Many of the reports were actually downloaded through a server in Boston, which is why the trial took place there. And ultimately, they made $100 million off of a $9 million investment into stocks. And this is partially why they were- it's quite a return. It's nuts. Yeah. So because they got a 900% return on investment in a period where the market only went up 25%, and also the times of their profitable trades corresponded with the times in which targeted companies reported being hacked, is how they were able to put two and two together and identify these folks. By the way, it kind of goes with the last one of how authorities are good, whether it's cryptocurrency or normal finance, they're good at actually tracking financial crime. I mean, Police say all the time, follow the money. So uh, yeah, if someone's having 900% returns regularly on the stock market, something interesting must be going on. And I want to talk about that for a second. So they gained this information by maliciously, illegally hacking into organizations. Um, but it wasn't that they weren't charged with any computer fraud and abuse act charges. They were charged with wire fraud and stuff. But the bulk of their convictions came from things related to trading securities from the SEC. 
I wonder if it's evidentiary based though. Like they probably have a lot of evidence that they know is easy for a, a, a you know a prosecutorial attorney to to use in the financial crime, and maybe they obviously know something about the hacking attempts to correlate it. But maybe their evidence wasn't as strong. You know, it, it, we always talk about it is a little harder sometimes to get very clear attribution and even if they have enough attribution for them for a jury so yeah i, I think you're right it's interesting that they they haven't been prosecuted on technical crimes but it could just be that they have a you know a open and shut case with the financial evidence they have would be my and speculation a little bit like ironic i guess so we talk about a lot how the FBI has been making an effort lately, or the U.S. government in general has been making an effort lately to name and shame people involved with, especially nation state activity, knowing that, you know, they're never going to be able to arrest them for the most part. But in one of these situations where we arrested a Russian national and successfully extradited them to the U.S., it was because of SEC violations and not necessarily the hacking component, which is kind of funny. But this also does show an example of you know, they got them because they left their country. And so, yes, by naming and shaming, you know, Chinese nationals and Russian nationals, if they stay home, we'll never be able to bring justice to them. But as soon as they step foot outside of their country into a, another country that's somewhat friendlier with the United States, that's when they're going to get nailed. And so, I don't know, Corey, would you trade millions of dollars earned from ransomware extortions for never being able to leave Russia ever again? Could you ask me the same question in America? Then maybe, no, my, my ethics are too strong, I hope, to do anything criminal in any way or form. But uh, Russia is not the country I would personally want to be stuck in. Now, other countries I could seek <laughs> criminals <laughs> being less. There there has to be a nice Caribbean island that doesn't have good extradition law or something. If I was but no, I, I love to travel. To be honest, I want to travel everywhere. So being stuck in one country would suck no matter what. Exactly. But how about you just earn your money legitimately and don't resort to crime? And if you're ingenious enough to do s smart things, use that to help society rather than steal from others. And this is one where like they had a legitimate business and theoretically like lucrative contracts with the Russian government, I'd imagine. Yeah, and it wasn't enough. And so they did more stuff on the side and we're dumb we didn't about mention it, it but then didn't, didn't, it was must have been a really old prediction but i feel like we had a prediction about financial related cyber attacks back when there was a lot of fintech i forget who the threat actor was but there is one with fin in their name that was using this very thing where they were basically targeting companies to get insider information so it, it i still find it a fascinating way to indirectly profit from cybercrime, all the different ways you can monetize getting data from someone else. It's like conceptually, okay, if I were a looser moral person, it makes sense as a way to do that. But at the same time, like you can't escape the fact, like just look at office space as a great documentary example of how financial crimes are still relatively easy to trace back to people if you aren't perfect. And in this situation, if you're making 900% returns on investment over and over and over again, it's going to raise red flags. It's not like people aren't watching for that activity. And, you know, that said, if they had stayed in Russia, there's a chance that we would have never gotten them and brought justice to them. But, you know, if, I guess if you really want to go on your uh, vacation ski trips, then maybe you should keep things above the board. <laughs>
Anyways, uh, speaking of foreign countries and cybercrime, um, on February 9th, so another one that we would have covered last week uh, had we been recording one then, uh, CISA released another advisory as a part of their hashtag Stop Ransomware campaign, uh, this time as a joint advisory with several South Korean agencies on the topic of North Korean state-sponsored ransomware activity. I'm going to pause here for a second and wind Corey up and just let him unleash. I, I, I won't rant. Everyone on this podcast has heard, I mean, the freaking government should stick to hacking for espionage, if not at all. So I'm just irritated by criminal governments. It's We have enough to deal with with normal cyber criminals, guys. Especially when you look at some of the victims that they pointed out in this report. They highlighted ongoing ransomware activities, Hospitals. specifically targeting healthcare as well as other critical infrastructure sectors. I, I, I was so skeptical of it, but we, you know, the government had strong indicators that WannaCry, one of the biggest healthcare ransomware attacks that affected lives was North Korea. So, you know, back when we first learned about that, I thought, has North Korea really dropped that low? But at this point, I, yes, it seems so. I guess they're sanctioned to death, so I get it. But maybe stop being a dictator and you won't be sanctioned anymore. Actually let your people eat some food and name their daughters whatever they want. And uh, I don't know if you heard that, by the way. Kim Jong-un made it illegal for any people to have the same name as his daughter. So all those girls that might have to go change their name now. Why? Because he's an evil dictator. <laughs> Man. I mean, that's okay. uh, a super narcissist, like ones that seem to exist in many countries nowadays. Is his daughter's name Karen, by chance? <laughs> <laughs> there has to be a Korean version of Karen, I'm sure. Apologies to any Karens that actually listen to this yes, podcast. We, we have nothing. Yeah, I feel bad for them. Their name is perfectly wonderful yeah. until society took it over. <laughs> but anyways... Uh, so in the advisory, they went over some of the actual TTPs that North Korea had been using. Uh, they note that they gain, typically gain access to networks by exploiting vulnerabilities like Log4Shell, uh, as well as a remote code execution vulnerability in uh, SonicWall SMA appliances. Uh, but they also spread through trojanized files shared in XPopup, uh, which if you're not in South Korea, you probably have no idea what that is. But if you are, you probably recognize it as an open source messenger app. It's used fairly regularly, especially in small and medium hospitals in South Korea. Um, after gaining access, they steal information from the victims' networks and then deploy a variety of ransomware. They have a couple of homebrewed ones. So Maui and Holy Ghosts are believed to be developed by Lazarus or this North Korean organization. But they also use other ones like BitLocker, Hidden Tier, LockBit, Ryuk. Sometimes they masquerade and pretend to be some uh, more prominent ransomware uh, activity sources uh, like Our Evil. Uh, but it seems like they're a little indiscriminate on what flavor of the month they decide to deploy on victims' networks. Um, when it comes to CSIS recommendations, it's nothing you haven't heard before. Like basic stuff like use VPNs for access, principle of least privilege, turn off unnecessary network services, and secure information. Um, they also point out some additional things, maintain isolated backups and regularly test the process, create and maintain an exercise for basic cybersecurity incident response and communications, install updates, 
uh, disable RDP, restrict uh, SMB access to within the network, do third-party risk management activities, uh, and uh, use application allow listing, which I guess in a hospital environment, that last one, application allow listing, might be a little more possible because it is a fairly controlled Absolutely. environment. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it's funny how at a normal business, we sometimes poo-poo on very strict whitelists because they really are hard to enforce at, say, a tech company where you have support reps that have to try things. But I, I think healthcare, I mean, obviously manufacturing and any operational network is a kind of a perfect place to do it. In a hospital, you should know exactly what's you know allowed on your OT hospital network. Maybe you have a staff network that's a little more lax, but have it completely segmented. So I agree with you. Similar to like cars, it's cool. I would love to do a whitelist only network IPS system, but that would be impossible with internet traffic. But if you have this closed network like a car network, so whitelisting becomes very viable. The The more proprietary enclosed your system is. So I think that's a great idea. So overall good tips from them, but like my, my just big gut takeaway from this is it sucks that we even have to have an advisory for a country delivering ransomware to hospitals. And I wish there was something more we could do about it. I don't know how many more sanctions we can even level on North Korea at this point. They're basically their own little entity, with their only friend being Russia. So whatever. If you are in the healthcare space, though, just be on the lookout if you weren't already. It's not the only healthcare-related story. I wasn't planning on talking about it, but there was also a series of DDoS attacks uh, over the last week or so from Killnet, a pretty oh, yeah. prolific just DDoS organization. Lately. Luckily, it's I'm, all been isolated just that, but still annoying. I feel like healthcare probably is already at, on high alert for ransomware. They've been a, a big game ransomware target for quite a few years now. But nonetheless, keep doing, keep, keep paying attention. That is my hot take, is that if you aren't already following a lot of these recommendations, it's because you're actively not trying to, or <laughs> I guess, or your superiors are preventing you because they're ignorant. Who knows? Um, yeah, or budget, although budget shouldn't be a problem ever. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> as, as I'm sure every security expert knows, even if a team has best intentions, there are sometimes business things that uh, become de detriments to those intentions. This is where, so CISA, we chatted about it, I think last month, maybe the month before, CISA's put out like even prioritized guidance on, you know, if you are limited on budget, I think it was, it was geared towards education, but it's applicable to hospitals too. And it's like, hey, here's the minimum you should do with like the minimum resources you may have that will cover the 80%. And then you can go tackle the rest of it later on. So there are prioritized lists. They've got their, what is it, cybersecurity's goals instead of just the framework to help along the way too. So there's tools at your disposal now and even more coming too. We're imminently waiting for an alert or an, an update from the White House on like cybersecurity guidance for the entire country, it seems like. So definitely getting the focus it deserves as of late. Um, moving on to the last story of this week. Uh, so over the last, like this last year, I've noticed at least several news stories popping up of malware being delivered via OneNote files. Uh, so this started in last August when researchers pointed out that the mark of the web flag was not being applied to OneNote attachments. 
Mark of the Web being the way that Microsoft uh, Office um, identifies whether a file was downloaded from an untrusted source, like directly from the internet or as an attachment for a, an email. Um, and, and with that, oh, you might have been going where I was about to. And the, the point is to offer more granular, like for instance, Everyone wants to block macros, but maybe your finance department really does use them. So you can have a more granular blocking policy where if it has mark of the web, meaning external, don't allow macros, but yep. maybe do allow them if they are internal. And in fact, with the recent updates in like July of last year, like macros are blocked by default and extremely difficult to allow if a file is tagged with that mark of the web. Now there's ways around it, like we see attackers using archives to deliver uh, Office documents now because the zip archive or whatever gets the mark of the web, but its contents does not. That is one limitation of it. But it still does, honestly, a pretty good job of protecting against just a malicious Office document directly attached to an email from being able to execute untrusted code. That said, because they've been doing so well with other Office documents, OneNote, which until recently lacked that mark of the web, uh, was an avenue that attackers had started pivoting to. Um, it wasn't until just last month when Microsoft silently patched the ability to bypass that mark of the web for OneNote attachments, but that didn't solve the entire problem. Uh, so threat actors can still embed files in OneNote documents and lure victims into executing it. Uh, to do that though now, they need to trick the user into opening the OneNote document and then clicking the enable editing button, similar to how you can trick them as the Word document too which that executes that attached code. Uh, so as of January though, there were more than 50 malicious campaigns abusing OneNote documents for malware delivery. Um, and attacks have been going on for at least four months with many anti-malware engines on VirusTotal failing to catch a lot of the threats. So I thought this was interesting to talk about because like we always point out cybersecurity is a evolving threat landscape. Office documents as a malware delivery vehicle grew in popularity and Microsoft's actions in the last year have made it more difficult with that mark of the web and auto blocking macros. So it makes sense that adversaries would pivot to something else that might allow it through. And OneNote documents for a while were extremely easy and now we're just at least a little easier than a Word document. So. But the way the good news is I, if we're there now, Mark, is I like, a lot of office document exploits are kind of hard to tell people tips around because we all do get things like PowerPoints, spreadsheets, and Word documents almost every day in legitimate business use. Now, there's still some good tips. You should never touch an uh, unsolicited office document, even if it comes from someone you know. If it's unsolicited and it's kind of a surprise to you, even if it is from a person, maybe ask them about it first. But, but that said, documents are legitimate very often, so it's hard to give advice. But that's where OneNote differs to me, Mark. I While I use OneNote, I don't think I've ever seen anyone send a OneNote document to me in my life. So to me, this seems like I'm sure there's some exception out there that uses them every day. But uh, most companies, you could probably outright block the dot one extension. Uh, or if you do get OneNote documents right oh, away, anything that? with a one one extension, eek, be careful. We haven't blocked it here at WashGuard, but we do at least like alert on it now uh, for any file sharing via Office or email attachments with OneNote documents. Because like you said, like I 
I've never encountered someone sharing a OneNote file over email. Like, yes, maybe if an employee is leaving, they might like share their OneNote via OneDrive or something for whoever's picking up their uh, their end of it. But I feel like in a corporate, I have to check up on it, but in a corporate environment, since it's all based on the login, I feel like a domain administrator could probably access my OneNote notebook that's stored in the cloud anyway. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't even almost have to share it because I think IT can get it. It's all in the cloud and a domain admin could basically have access to anything I do. So, I have to imagine yeah. that is the case. So maybe this is just the time to block OneNote delivery via email. If you do happen to need to share it, use share links via OneDrive or something else because it seems like this is a popular avenue for delivering malware now that it still somewhat kind of works. And yeah. clearly is Unlike you, by the way, I, I had, had not seen the stories about this before, so I didn't know they were using OneNote myself. So I, I just think knowing about this new kind of extension to look out for is definitely a, a good little tip. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad that I could give some good little tips finally on this podcast. It's only been going for two years and I appreciate having your approval, Corey. <laughs> uh, with that, <laughs> I think that's a good enough place to end it. Go ahead and just block all OneNote uh, documents. You probably don't need them. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey is at SecAdept, and the both of us are at hashtag the 443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.